More than 45 years ago, when Acres USA started, only a few lone voices chose to stay off the toxic agriculture bandwagon, farm with nature, and start a movement. Now, tens of thousands actively reject toxic agriculture methods, and Acres USA's community of eco-growers and professional farmers are driving the changes happening around the world. Through our monthly magazine, events, books, audio lectures, and podcasts, Acres USA teaches people how to successfully apply ecological-based farming strategies. Through practical and hands-on education, Acres USA aims to lead the world to ecologically and economically sustainable agricultural standards. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. If you call, mention you heard this advertisement on the Permaculture Podcast and receive 10% off your order of any educational materials. Acres USA magazine subscription and event tickets are not included. Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. As we begin, the Summer to Fall fundraiser continues. Phase 1 is complete, and I'll be heading off to surgery on September 6th. From here, there's another $1,700 or so to reach the overall campaign goal and close out Phase 2, which will cover my other medical needs through the end of the year. Give today online by going to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, co-host David Bilbrey sits down with Gregory Landway to talk about Regen Network and how they are using blockchain technology to create transparency and accountability for regenerative businesses. This allows those who use these systems to decentralize how to account for the use of natural resources and how we can, with these tools and other emergent ideas, allow farmers, designers, and others to retain and generate more of their own wealth in whatever way they value that capital. Enjoy this conversation, and I'll join you again afterward. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com and the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm here today with Gregory Landway and kind of following up on the conversation we had at Region 18. Gregory is the co-author of the groundbreaking book, Regenerative Enterprise, which talks about the eight forms of capital. He is founding member and CEO of TerraGenesis International and the CEO and co-founder of Regen Network, which is a global community and platform focused on ecological monitoring and regeneration. Welcome, Gregory. Great to be here, David. And I'll also be joined with my beautiful 14-month-old son in the background for those who are listening and wondering what the what the laughter and little child noises are. That's, that's Obi. Okay, <laughs> excellent. Welcome, Obi. <laughs> so um, for starters, why don't you uh, extend my introduction and talk a little bit about what you're doing just in, a gen- in general terms with Regen Network, which is kind of the accumulation and continuation of several other things you've been doing for the last several years. So Regen Network is really the application of new distributed ledger and blockchain technology to living capital accounting. And for those listeners who are familiar with some of my earlier work with regenerative enterprise and the eight forms of capital and that framework that's kind of gone viral in the in the permaculture movement, first off, that uh, framework of eight forms of capital, that emerged out of community process, right? And it became readily apparent to everybody who's in that process that, you know, there is, of course, this sort of... Uh, powerful and oftentimes forgotten living wealth 
And in permaculture, of course, we're all pretty aware of that. And we dedicate an entire design science to cultivating and expressing that living, living health and wealth in ever more dynamic and abundant ways, right? But how do we then weave that living capital into our modern economy our, or our post-industrial economy? How does that happen in a way that's integrous and actually ends up not just sort of degrading and banalizing that living wealth by, you know, dissecting it and splicing it up? You know, like a frog, if you split a frog up into quarters and try to use it as a medium of exchange, the frog's no longer alive. Whereas if you split a dollar up into quarters, you have quarters, right? So there's clearly there's different rules for how currency and exchange happens with a valuation of the living world. And so Regen Network as a platform and a project is really centered around how to bring living, thriving ecosystems more firmly into the center of our economy as humans. Excellent. Thanks for that introduction. The uh, discussion about use of blockchain for regenerative purposes was uh, new to me recently and fascinating. So we'll talk more about that in, in a bit. Well, um, I just wanted to comment a little bit about regenerative enterprise and, and the introduction of the idea of the eight forms of capital. That was very impactful for me. Um, it was one of the, the best and clearest sort of descriptions of this concept that there is other things to look at, monitor and, and nurture besides uh, profit, monetary profit. So that was a, a really helpful piece for me a couple of years ago. So thank you for that. So for starters, I think I'd like to just talk about kind of the movement in general and sort of the evolution of how permaculture is now really evolving into these regenerative economic and social system change ideas with investment, with regenerative enterprises like you're doing, uh, and lots of the ideas uh, we've been hearing more and more about new businesses starting up. So could you talk a little bit about how that's evolved in your experience here in the last, you know, 10 years? I would say I'm like a fourth wave permie, as I understand the, the waves of how the teaching and exploration and embodiment of permaculture has swept around the world. Maybe third wave. It's Sometimes it's hard to say generationally. So in the beginning, there was Bill and David. And then they taught this sort of first wave. So I'm, I'm even saying they're Genesis, but the first wave is all of the teachers, amazing folks. Rick Valley, who is my teacher, David Jackie, um, Rosemary Morrow. There's just um, many amazing teachers out there. Uh, Scott Pittman, Penny Livingston, actually, I think is the next generation after that. So you sort of can track things or the evolution by these sort of generations or cohorts of people who dove in. And it doesn't really have to do with age of the person, right? It's just when they woke up and engaged. Um, and, the, and a lot of these people were already very woke. They were already very aware and doing different dynamic things. But when they engaged with sort of permacultures and movement, at just what time in the evolution of things? And I think what's happened is more cyclical than it is sort of like a linear line. You know, I listened to some of Bill Mollison's early thinking, and he was just nailing a lot of the stuff that we were just coming full circle around to when we launched the Financial Permaculture Initiative in 2008, right? And so he was talking about 
sort of mutual credits and, you know, having credit unions and, you know, the way that you uh, invest in and create a local economy, that was all there sort of theoretically. And I think there were some very thriving, small e experiments happening. But also as permaculture has evolved, the World Wide Web has evolved as well. So the access to information and the rapidity of the ability to report on how an experiment is going has evolved. And so now at this stage, what used to be sort of these very small, marginal, brilliant, prickly pioneer species who are out there sort of like defending these, you know, in terms of the culture at large, these marginal ideas, there's been ecological succession, right? And, then, and now there's more, there's, there's a higher diversity of very different types of people engaging with things, but with a shared set of ethics and, and exploring the application of design principles to what they're up to. And at this stage, there's not just sort of these small, intensive 72-hour design courses and sort of centered around these sort of suburban or rural homesteads, but instead there's urban projects happening and there's online courses happening and there's YouTube personalities and there's, you know, Facebook and Twitter people and there's podcasters like yourself and there's sort of like this whole ecosystem of all these different people building collective intelligence and transmitting information much faster than it ever did before. And I think that that's really a powerful and amazing example of kind of ecological succession. Like here we are, we're starting to proceed towards more of a, you know, in quotes, climax ecosystem of there's many different roles and there's people who are spreading really big, broad, wide branches. And, and then there's understory and there's mycelium and there's a lot of different things happening right now. And, and I think there's some undercover crypto permies, not crypto in terms of blockchain, but people who are hiding, you know, they're doing things in the corporate world, or they're doing things in government, but they're, they're infused and inspired by a core set of ethics and, and applying whole systems design to how they're thinking about things. And then we're also seeing an intersection with other movements like biomimicry, sort of broader regenerative design and whole systems thinking. And and that's always been a part, I mean, permaculture's always been sort of holistic and drawn from many different disciplines, but it also sort of became its own movement. And now it's intersecting with these these other movements as well. And that's very rich and fertile. So it's 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 been fun to watch it evolve. I mean, I've sort of been involved in making my livelihood and making my way as a as a permi since I, since a little bit before I graduated from college and haven't really stepped out of the stream in that time. So I guess I'm about, I'm, wow, I'm kind of closing in on 20 years, which is kind of crazy and startling to think about. And I'm a young one, really, in the movement too. And so it's just reflecting on the mentorship and elders and what a rich, powerful and thoughtful community we have is really, uh, it's really inspiring. It really is. And, and even the time that I've been uh, involved since 2011, or I should say aware and then involved, there's really a huge groundswell of, of people involved, as you say, from a variety of disciplines. 
and also just resources available. And then the ideas being applied more broadly, as you said, Mollison talked about some of these ideas, but they're really being experimented with on the ground a lot more here, at least some of them have been experimented with for decades, but there's a lot more happening now here in the last several years and, and also just awareness and availability of learning about those different people and, and sort of movements. And then also just seeing, like you say, the connection of the different um, emerging movements, finding each other, you know, you know, to speak to something there, I think one thing that I'm very hopeful and I see some evidence around, but also it could kind of go either way at this stage is I think at this moment, this sort of like, self-reflection and consciousness as a movement, it needs to happen because we need to also be questioning, you know, there was a lot of stuff that Bill said that may or may not actually work in the real world. And much of that has been transmitted from teacher to student and from student to student and from student to student in this sort of each one teach one kind of exponential curve of people learning and experimenting with permaculture. And at this stage, I think we really need to be rigorous and, and robust with embracing, embracing sharing when things don't work instead of just teaching things that we were told work. Because that's how you, that's whole systems thinking, that's design, that's engagement with patterns is building the capacity to kind of have this like a movement of learning, right? Instead of a movement of just passing on uh, what someone told you would work. And, you know, do you always use a swale? Is key line always the answer? You know, is key line just ripping, you know, with a plow or is it actually a methodology for approaching scale of permanence? You know, these are things that I think the movement is grappling with right now. And I see signs that it's going to be dealt with with a lot of maturity. And I look, you know, at um, folks like my friend Rafter, who's really bringing the scientific lens and, you know, other people sort of embracing the experimentation and embrace of learning and embrace of failure on the path to success. And that's very exciting to me. I'm less excited about sort of like permi dogma and herb spirals everywhere. It's pretty uninspiring. As it is kind of really moving into uh, finance and business more in a more public way, being aware of the herb spiral and swale sort of cliches as those cliches emerge <laughs> in regenerative business and uh, finance, uh, trying to steer clear of those or at least clarify them. And, and that just like a design of a permaculture site on a specific piece of land in a specific geographic location, the solutions are going to be different in each business project and each financial you know situation, just like it is with land. So that's really good to be aware of. And you can only see the patterns later, right? So, or, or we develop, we, I mean, you can see patterns in the moment, but we should be developing our capacity to see patterns more and more clearly. And part of experimentation and engaging with the business world and the financial world and the world of governance and, and community, which is really necessary, you know, the, the invisible structures, so to speak, you know, they are why projects succeed or fail. It's not just do you have your sort of hard gardening skills or your hard orchardry skills or your hard farming skills, you know, because we live in a world of markets and governments and politics. And so we just have to be aware of all of that and weave it in and account for it and learn from it and experiment and be 
kind of bold and say, okay, I'm going to test this assumption. But I'm aware I'm testing it. I'm not just assuming. I've seen several projects and heard stories of them falling apart because of the human element. And um, we understand really clearly what makes a successful permaculture project as far as how you work with the land and the water and the plants and trees and everything, but what the parallels are, parallel analogies are for human relationships and human structures of um, communities and governments and, and corporations. That is something that is, doesn't really have, there's not a lot of language for that yet. And so I guess as there's more awareness and as more, there's more experiments and uh, successes and failures than that language can develop. But I think that's really important because yeah, the human element is the one of the most important and probably the most volatile and fragile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, totally. Yeah. So I really like what the sort of what you're saying about being a learning movement and really understanding what's happening movement wide and identifying the patterns. And I totally agree with you. I mean, pattern recognition is very important, but a lot of it you don't see until hindsight. So how can we as a movement, how can we foster that and I guess document and track these elements in a broad enough way that enough people have access so that we are learning as a community and as a group of people worldwide? I mean, I was thinking about starting a website called permaculturefail.com <laughs> <laughs> with the idea of how liberating and amazing it would be to build this sort of pattern literacy by understanding what didn't work all around the world in all these places and celebrating it, not having it be a shame thing. Like my dam broke or my assumptions about, you know, team building totally backfired. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of half joking, but I think that's one of the big elements is how do we celebrate the learning that comes from failure so that people can then identify patterns of what worked and what didn't. Because I think the danger is that we follow charisma, which was a big part of the pioneer species of our movement's capacity to make this even a thing, right? But we also need to celebrate the hiccups and frustrations and dam blowouts and, you know, misplaced swales and poorly planned guilds and <laughs> broken financial plans and <laughs> all of the rest of that and, and learn from it. So that's one is kind of that element. And then the other, I think, is just kind of embracing kind of the Eastern style of science and Western style of science. So the Eastern style of science is, you know, yoga and meditation and developing and cultivating a powerful introspective lens where we can actually see and take ownership for our own experience and recognize our own role in mistakes or, or successes and just kind of be discerning and clear about that. And that's really important, I think, that individuals and groups really cultivate that and develop that capacity. And then on the other hand, sort of the exterior focused science of which I was sort of referencing earlier of testing assumptions and not in a reductionist way, but in a process systemic way. And, you know, I think if those three things are operational in projects and, you know, so we're, we're sort of sharing an open source perspective about the information 
in order to grow the whole community through our endeavors, things will accelerate very quickly and we will be a learning movement. The other thing that's, that is really fantastic is with all the negativity that we hear in the media about technology and the negative uses of it, and even in the permaculture community, the dynamics of technology and how it really is moving forward, the movement through the internet and all the various forms, including podcasting, so that first awareness and consciousness can be really be raised and people can enter into this space in a lot more First of all, more people, but also accelerating the learning process so they can become aware of it and then engage and begin to practice it in a, a lot more rapid way, you know? Well, you know, look, technology and culture have a reciprocal relationship. They co-develop one another. And you could say, in a way, that technology emerges out of culture. Like how we, like what the tools are and the techniques are and the technologies are that are available to us in this moment have emerged out of a cultural context. And so pointing at technology and saying that's bad, you're sort of pointing at the malaise of the culture, which is a hard thing to tangle with, right? Because we're in, we, you know, we, sometimes we can't see the air that we breathe, you know, but here we are. And I really think we need to approach, if you're, if you're going to approach it holistically, and move towards regeneration, we need to recognize and embrace technology sort of like permaculture has done a beautiful job of transcending the dichotomy between like native and invasive species and sort of like the othering that is rampant in conservation biology where it's like that's an invasive species because of this arbitrary ideal of whatever time period you decided to put the stop on. And that isn't to say that we don't want ecosystems that are expressing like a pre-Columbian facet. That's not what I'm saying. But just like the emotional reaction to invasive species, in quotes, and the crazy shit that people do to react to that and spray chemicals all over the place in the name of wildlife conservation and stuff, which is kind of nuts. I think we as a movement, also we do that with technology, right? And we sort of like point and we're like, this technology is bad and I'm running the other direction from it, but we're sort of running from ourselves. And so to the extent to which we can have a non-reactive relationship and understand how the technology is emerging the same way that we have that relationship with a, you know, a non-native plant to understand how it can be medicine in the system, I think is just extraordinarily important for this wave of entrepreneurs who are sort of like leading the regenerative movement. Yeah, I like that. And and, and a way to think about it, too, is that it, it is part of nature. <laughs> I heard Paul Stamets talking recently about mycelium and the whole way that they, they communicate and how resilient mycelium is and essential to life is. And he was saying, you know, the internet is basically just a manifestation of the way communication's been happening through ecosystems, through mycelium for, you know, a hundred percent millennia. And it's like, that's, I, that's totally right. It's a really helpful way to think about it, that this is just another part of nature that's evolving and part of the way we connect with one another. And really because of the direness of the situation, the urgency of the situation we're in ecologically and politically, we need this dynamic and fast communication system just to connect enough people to, to, you know, turn things around. 
coordination. And, you know, I oftentimes think of the region network as a project. I oftentimes, there's a couple of ways that I think about it. One is reconnecting the technosphere back to the biosphere. And really the visual that I use to anchor myself and what we're really up to is kind of we're creating the silicon, like the silicon mycelial neural network that really anchors in a global, like global organism superintelligence to manage and have equilibrium and be able to coordinate our activities as a part of a, a whole, a whole living, breathing earth, right? The, of which we are already a part of this whole, but it's just sort of growing our capacity to be within that. And when thought of through that lens, there's a very strong ethical imperative around how we interact with technology, but it isn't reactive. It is um, proactive and co-creative. And so we can start to see when is it appropriate to be connected with the global supermind and when isn't it? And in what conditions is it appropriate to be building server systems and processing information? And in what situations isn't it? It's not just a sort of black or white, we have the ability to sort of reconcile the tension and serve something that's actualizing a healthy system of which we are a, a member, we're a part, we're a member of the ecosystem. I think this is a perfect segue to talk about region network uh, a bit more. So you are doing just that, collaborating with people and trying to use some technology that is really in an emergence phase to really uh, move to the next level of regeneration. How are you using blockchain to try and do that? For the, for the listeners who are sort of either unaware or foggy about blockchain and distributed ledger technology in general, and there, there are some even sort of uh, blockchain 2.0 initiatives out there as well, basically what the new, what's new about it is the ability to have consensus about data or reality in sort of a digital way, ones and zeros, the ones and zeros that represent something, whether it's a, a monetary transaction or in our case, you know, an ecological state shared across a network of people. So that instead of having sort of a central server or a central authority that says this happened and this didn't happen, you know, like you transmitted this money to your friend through a PayPal or you didn't. The actual, the whole network itself serves to validate and transact with itself. And so what that does is it shifts the power center from kind of a centralized source, which there's sort of always an incentive in that centralized source to sort of... Uh, continue to build up power and potentially commit fraud or do crazy things like we saw happen with the banking industry in 2008 and has happened in the past many times. And instead, you sort of create this hard-coded digital constitution that all of the network is running by and upholding together. And so there's a lot of different metaphors that one could use. But in this case, I think it's, it's basically, it's the embodiment of what the internet was supposed to be, which is, you know, a mycelial network connecting, you know, the forest 
and the internet, the, the more centralized, like if you can't even really wrap your head around what a centralized mycelial network beneath a forest would look like. That's just not how they work, right? You see strands connect and they, they're sort of moving and, and there's intersections and those intersections pile on top of each other until they form a node and then that forms a fruiting body. So if we're going to follow the patterns of nature, like with good permaculture design, it follows that we have to have kind of this decentralized rule structure baked into how we interact with the internet. And that's basically what blockchain does. And these other technologies that, that you can hard code sort of a, a decentralized digital infrastructure in order to transact with one another, share information, do file storage, um, run applications, whatever it might be. And so sort of the network itself becomes the server, if you want to think of it that way, in this sort of scenario. So that's like my blockchain 101 for permies, trying to use some natural metaphors. So, okay, do you have any questions or you want to dig into that before I go into what we're doing at Region Network? I guess um, maybe just an example, like give an example in the context of an agroforestry project business. So for Regen Network, what we're trying to do is create sort of open protocols where you can measure, verify, and authenticate ecological state. That is to say, we would like to be able to create a trust system where if someone all the way across the world who has an ag agroforestry project says that they you know, have this level of biodiversity and have sequestered this much carbon and have this much water in storage in their soil sponge and this much water in storage in their dams, you could trust what they said because the network signals that it is true. And there's a variety of different ways that, that we sort of think about that. One is, you know, satellite data. The other is maybe your neighbors are verifying things or maybe you've uploaded a photo of things. But the point is that there isn't just sort of this compliance-driven certification body that says, yes, you're doing it right or no, you're not. But instead, building an open infrastructure whereby trust that ecological regeneration is indeed happening is part of how we transact with one another. And so that's sort of like the abstract layer, right? Let me like really just drill it in to some concrete examples. So right now, farmers who are taking a regenerative approach usually have like a higher gross yields on their ecosystems of a higher diversity of products which means that they can't achieve an economy of scale of any single one, which means that they have a lot of market problem because our whole global marketplace is focused on selling from monocultures because that simply was the most efficient extractive economy play, right? So there's a couple of different problems with that. And one of the big ones from my perspective is we're not valuing the externalized costs of the extractive monoculture, and how do you value those costs? Well, you could run a satellite model or you could have, you could have a, ver like a certification verification scheme or there's sort of a, a whole spectrum of different ways that you could verify that. What we're trying to do is make it simple 
and cheap and effective for any two people or three or group anywhere around the world to basically put a symbol what they need to in order to trust that something good is happening on a piece of land and then create transactions based on what they need for trust. So I sort of feel like I'm butchering the larger explanation here, but where I want to go next with it is sort of just like grounding us. I'm sure most of your listeners are aware FAO recently released a study. I think it was about a year ago that there are 60 harvests left at the current rate of soil degradation. We just passed 408 or 410 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. These are artifacts of an extractive economy that is continuing to accelerate its extractive capacity. So what needs to be true to shift to a regenerative economy that's actively drawing that carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into soil, actively regenerating landscapes, and creating more nutrient-dense food. I think there's a lot of things that need to happen, but one of the big ones is making it possible for it to be simple and quick and frictionless to transact with a true cost. As simple and quick and easy as it is to transact, or even simpler and easier as it is to transact with a fake cost of an extractive, subsidized monoculture industry. So what we're trying to do with Region Network is basically make it super simple for all of the different stakeholders in a system of supply, from the farmer to the customer, to exchange based on accounting for the ecosystem functions of a regenerative agroecosystem. So how do you do that? Well, so that's where I was sort of starting with what we call ecological state protocols. So there are ways to both monitor and to measure ecological state, the health of an ecosystem, right? So on the modeling side of things, you can use sort of um, a global consensus generated by publicly available satellite information. You can get really detailed information about any plot of land anywhere on Earth right now. Daily updates. This is pretty cool. So we can see if somebody has planted a key lion orchard. Or we could see if there's dams or swales, or we can measure the relative diversity of a landscape. We also have cool new technologies like drones, which can do the same thing at much higher resolution. They can also have multi-spectrum imaging. So, so you can actually tell the health, the photosynthetic health of a plant, right? Which tells you about how much carbon is being pulled down through photosynthesis and injected into as liquid carbon into the soil. So you can tell, you can start to gain a lot of information about sort of the ecosystem functions and dynamics with these technologies. You can also, I mean, there's some emerging interesting science with new sensors and ways to, you know, measure soil moisture, measure weather, measure electric connectivity in the soil, which can be correlated to organic matter and moisture and, you know, mycelial density and other things. And there's emerging new technologies that may even get us closer to have a direct, how much carbon is in soil right now, which at the moment is sort of a, you have to calculate according to these various variables 
that you're testing or you have to just like have somebody go there and pull out a soil core and basically burn the soil and how the difference between the incinerated weight and the the first weight is how much carbon there was which is you know kind of crazy so those are all ways to sort of generate understanding that that's the science behind generating understanding about ecological state and what we're doing is building a platform whereby whatever level of assuredness you need in order to bake that health into a transaction, whether it's a carbon credit being traded globally or a price premium on an organic carrot for the service of sequestering carbon because it's no-till, or simply a municipal watershed restoration and being able to value shifts in behavior for farmers in a watershed so that there's less floods, whatever level of assuredness, you can very easily just sort of bake that into a pre-programmed contract. And the moment that someone fulfills that pre-programmed contract, the contract execute. So farmers can be rewarded instantly for achieving ecological regeneration with zero middleman just seamlessly across the network. And so the aim there being to have this sort of frictionless capacity to value living capital, not just to splice it up like a frog, but to actually value the living frog and the importance of that. So that's what we're driving for. That's what we're working with. First of all, just that is powerful. I'm getting more clarity about what your project's about as you're talking. um, And that's just a really powerful tool on a couple of levels. One is just the removing of the middleman is one of the key things that I've seen happen in a couple different enterprises where there was a tremendous amount of cost for having that middleman in place. And when people could figure out ways to be the middleman for themselves, then the farmers were able to get paid a much more fair and and living wage than they were otherwise. So that's fantastic. The other thing that comes to mind is this ability to document the effects of these type of enterprises on the environment. And that does a couple of things, not least of which creates confidence and hope in people's minds who may doubt or not understand what's happening when you can you have scientific documentation of how this has happened and what has been created and how the ecosystem's been improved and you know all those different factors. So that's really exciting because you can't really argue. You can't argue with that level of documentation and scientific documentation. And that's something in some ways has been missing in the permaculture movement, especially for larger, for really replacing the core like protein calories in someone's diet. So that's really exciting. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, it really emerged out of a gap or a need in the work of Terragenesis International with companies who wanted to shift towards regenerative agriculture in their supply, right? But being able to quantify that for their investors, being able to pass that value on to their customers, being able to align all the stakeholders. So these, because it does, it takes a bunch of work to shift business as usual to business as it could be in a regenerative economy. And so you need to have this sort of ecological accounting system and contracting system. And it needs to be available and accessible and inviting for all of the stakeholders. And it is basically like a science, a scientific network or instrument, a networked instrument 
that's allowing us to understand at a very granular scale what's happening in ecosystems around the world. And then above that, sort of a framework for building trust that that is in fact true and then executing contracts about what that means, that this value is being generated and passed on. Or the value is being eroded. And that's also something that you could track and you could have contracts around. So you could have, you know, watershed being monitored by a municipality. And if a factory is polluting, there can be an automatic programmed smart contract that that factory has to pay. And that was just part of their arrangement with getting to build there, right? So you can just sort of automate and make seamless a lot of things that at the moment they take a huge amount of sort of bureaucratic energy and much of the payment that should be getting funneled directly to the soil and to the people tending the soil tend to get caught up in these sort of institutions whose real incentive is to exist. The institution's incentive is not necessarily to transform the system to be regenerative, it's to continue existing. And that's kind of a harsh thing to say, but I think it's true. The interesting thing, though, is those institutions usually have really powerful tools. And basically, the cool thing is, is we're inviting all of those institutions with their tools to basically engage as the first adopters in region networks so that basically they can bring their protocols and their ways of measuring and their, you know, third party authentication and all of these other things into this decentralized network. And they will have a place to prosper in a new way of doing things it doesn't mean that they're just getting like cut out it just means that they'll be more effective and efficient and need to serve the community at a higher order really i'm looking at the this picture on uh the region.network website it's on the first page if you scroll down it says catalyzing regeneration and it has these different pieces there's a fruit or this is around a big lake so there's a forestry project there's vertical mariculture there's cattle ranch there's fishery so you have all these different projects around this large lake and i'm just thinking about the the dynamics that you have of being able to really regenerate an ecosystem in a lot more intelligent way when you have data on these different projects and then you can see that the uh Silvo pasture is doing something really dynamic with what the positive runoff that's going into the water that's helping restore the you know the ecosystem of the aquaculture and then know that you need to do you know 10 more projects like this in certain locations to bring up certain levels you know to help do that so i i can really see this as a dynamic tool for sort of a positive spiral upward of regeneration in the larger landscapes that's definitely our hope is that this can be a tool to catalyze and support landscape and watershed and bioregion and global scale regeneration and, and not just reward it and not just in, you know incentivize it and make transacting and valuing that easy, but also, as you're saying, have a positive spiral and reciprocal relationship between the land management choices and our ability to understand the consequences, positive or negative, of those choices. So we can really get into gear and learn what's working and what's not and sort of build this collective intelligence around how we steward our landscapes. I can see it as a really useful tool, especially for emerging economies in second and third world countries. 
to give them information and to really look at what they're the decisions they're making with who they allow in and what they allow to happen on their land in their nation because they can see a lot more specifically and directly how it's going to affect them and their people both in the short term and the long term. So where in the past the ignorance and the lack of information with some of these economies and the immediate need for cash uh, created very negative circumstances where they allowed big corporations in to come and just really extract on a massive level. And decades later, they're still suffering the consequences. So this puts tools in the hand of those type of companies and governments to really make a wiser, more informed decision. Yeah. I mean, one of our core passions is empowering smallholder farmers who grow by far the majority of the world's food. Although we don't live that reality in North America where there's a small number of farmers managing a huge amount of land. Most of the world, there's a large number of farmers managing a small amount of land. And it's really important that that creates complexity that this tool is sort of being built to deal with. However, it's also extraordinarily useful and important at the the broad scale, sort of low farmer density, broad acre approach of sort of a, a Western industrial scale system. I mean, basically, our pitch to farmers right now is, look, right now, you're just selling a commodity. If you participate with Region Network, you get to sell your data into this global intelligence system that you get to benefit from improving your practices. And that data gets used to create a marketplace for the ecological services you provide if you start to shift towards no-till and increase diversity of cropping and have rotational grazing coming through at the right time of year to eat the stubble after you've harvested and all of these other things that are examples of regenerative agriculture at industrial scale, which is totally doable. So it basically becomes a really powerful win-win, we think, for the next generation of sort of industrial farmers in North, the North American context, both to make it more viable for smaller scale farms, but also to, you know, allow for efficiency to coexist with regeneration and for the shift to happen, you know, and it's something like 80% of farms and farmers are set to farms are set to pass hands in North America to a new generation in the next 10 years. And so, you know, what we really feel like we're doing is building a tool that allows them to manage regeneratively, be paid for the ecological service they're providing the whole planet by sequestering this sort of excess carbon into their soils, which is kind of a crazy win-win for a farmer. Because if you have more carbon in your soil, you can grow better crops and you get more money. So they're going to get paid twice, once for better crops and once for providing this ecosystem service. And then on top of that, they can get paid for their data. How does that work? How do they get paid for their data? Well, so the, the idea here is that the data marketplace idea is that basically farmers own their own data and can wire their farms or monitor their farms how they see fit and basically utilize that to improve their own intelligence and operations. And if they would like, they can also share that data or sell that data as either part of verification schemes or part of larger sort of scientific endeavors to understand 
the dynamics of their farming situation, of their e agroecosystem. So it's sort of like what we're envisioning and working on creating on the application level is kind of like a Spotify for a farmer, where they have their feed of data and they can choose to allow people to subscribe to that, like a research institution, like we were just talking with Yale School of Forestry, who's doing really amazing work on soil carbon sequestration and other things in the high plains. If they could just basically subscribe to this, you know, an API from 30 different farmers who need to be monitoring their systems anyway, and the farmers can dictate whatever privacy level of privacy they want. It doesn't need to be just totally open. It could only be used for that study or it could with the smart contracting framework we're developing, people basically have control over what they'd like to participate and what they don't. So that's kind of the scenario of how that layer of things works and how it drives and interconnects with the larger aim, right, which is inviting and rewarding ecological regeneration. But in order to do that, I mean, people may be coming aware, what we're building is an ecological knowledge layer, that allows for regeneration to occur and allows for people to reward, incentivize, trade, exchange, this sort of living wealth. So, and hopefully compensate the farmers in a, at a higher rate than musicians are compensated through streaming music. But uh, yeah, that's, that's really good. And I, I can see the results of this in the coming years and, and decades of having this visibility of the results. And also it would just create a starker contrast between regenerative agriculture and conventional extractive destructive agriculture because you have a lot more data to say, here, here's what this looks like. Here's what they did. Here's what happened. Here's the quality of the soil. Here's the runoff and what got killed in the ocean because of that runoff. And here's this other system. And here's what it's created over this period of time. And so that will go a long way to shifting consciousness and changing paradigms of the, the general public, which only will accelerate the whole thing and also just really encourage people to put their dollars, purchasing dollars towards regenerative enterprise before any other form, even if it costs a little bit more, because it's actually cost less if you look at the big picture. Well, and we'll be able to much more easily push policy. The only reason that it costs more is because there's in the industrial context, there's so many subsidies, you know, <laughs> propping up a false economy. So it doesn't actually cost less to produce crazy chemical monoculture. It costs a lot more. It's just that those costs are paid for by the people in our taxes. And when there's this sort of preponderance of evidence and we can see the public service generated by different farming practices and that can be robustly and scientifically proven and shared. I also think there's going to be larger systemic changes at the policy level that will just sort of, you know, I think the, the dam is going to break. It's all just going to start flowing in a watershed event as this starts to pick up steam. And, you know, region network, we're playing a particular role. We're trying to create, you know, one thing, people still might be scratching their heads going like, wow, this seems really ambitious and crazy. But so just to catch everybody up, like everything that I'm talking about is happening in a centralized way already. Like I haven't described any sort of like crazy new technological capacity on the entire 
phone call. What I've been explaining is how we want to approach this to create an integrated platform, right? That all of these things can happen. Right now, all of these things are already happening and it's just centralized, monopolistic players like Monsanto and John Deere that we all love to hate. They're controlling data and they're using it to create efficiencies in how much water. So they don't have a holistic approach to ecosystem health. So they're just thinking, how do I use less water? Or how do I use less chemicals? Or how do I get higher yield with this GMO corn? So they're, they're using data in a very reductionist way. They're not saying, how do I use this information to prove ecological regeneration and grow my capacity to accelerate that natural regenerative potential of the soil? That's not the question they're asking. They're asking a different set of questions with the data, but the data is being collected. And their model is kind of like Facebook. We'll collect all of this data. What you do as a farmer is you just farm away. And we're going to collect all this data because we have all these sensors deployed and your tractors now. And we'll fly some drones and we'll do some things. And all you get is to sell to us your crops. Because if you don't let us collect the data, we won't buy your produce. Right. That's the deal that the farmers are currently getting. And then that data is used kind of like Facebook uses everybody's data. Right. It's sold as a derivative to the highest bidder or it's used to create new products that farmers then have to buy. What we're saying is, look, farmers and land stewards basically need to have rights to their information. It is actually the most valuable currency in the world. The information about ecosystem health. And so we want to create a decentralized marketplace and farmer and land steward centric approach where people own their information and there are rewards for cooperating and sharing that information with one another in order to have better information, in order to prove and verify things, and in order to make the whole system work in a better and healthier way. And I think that's actually a pretty darn attractive pitch. I would say so. So, you know, that's what we're working on. And, and the nice thing is, is we have a lot of traction with companies, with farmers, with pilot projects, and um, it's moving very fast and um, it's very exciting. So would you consider it also a democratization of data? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's just, I mean, that's so powerful to think about. I kind of hadn't thought about the amount of data that those those stakeholders are, are gathering and using, uh, not for the benefit of humanity. So um, putting that that power back into the hands of the farmer and the people is just a huge thing. And, and the, the idea, the issue of subsidies was kind of came up in my mind a few minutes ago. So there is, I don't know, the dollar amounts, millions, billions of dollars of subsidies for corn and soy, et cetera, in, in conventional agriculture, just in the U.S. alone. If you have this kind of data showing what can be done in a positive way if you begin to incentivize that behavior with the subsidies and take it away from the behavior that's destroying the planet then first of all you're using subsidies for their actual original purpose and intention and secondly you are d you're defunding degenerative agriculture to a major degree so that it takes so much power out of the hands of Monsanto and all of those different agencies that are making billions of dollars on the backs of, of the earth and, and all of the rest of us. So that is a, 
that's a nuclear powered tool there, Greg. <laughs> well, right, and it, and it becomes like if we if we play our cards right, we shift the dynamics so much that Mon- in order to even compete and survive as a business, Monsanto has to jump on the democratized regenerative agriculture bandwagon. Otherwise, they'll go to business, right? They'll be penalized. Nobody will. The farmers won't sell to them. Nobody will, you know, engage with them. So. You know that's the end game, and and it is. It's a it's a really it's a big play. But at this stage, you know, I think we need to be thinking at that scale. So how do we get from here to there? You got what you guys are doing is obviously really important. So what is step one? Well, we you know we're in the we're in the very early stages of selling our token, and so you could think of that as we're building this public infrastructure, this open source public infrastructure. It's kind of like a subway that you take to regeneration. It's a piece of public infrastructure, really. It's digital, but it's a, it's a community infrastructure, open source, that is run on these tokens. And that's, we, I didn't get into the whole token economic side of things, but there's sort of a, a emerging, blossoming, burgeoning, accelerating movement around open source tokenized protocols. And I'm not going to get dive into that right now because that'll be a tangent. You know, it's a whole nother, you know, <laughs> deep dive. But so we're selling these tokens. It's sort of like we're pre-selling the token that allows you to run on the subway. We're pre-selling the tokens that allow you to run ecological state verification protocols, smart contracts, and basically run the system that we're building, right? That's our fundraising mechanism. So first we're funding, it's sort of a crowdfund, although in the United States, our government has decided that pre-selling these tokens is a speculative enough investment that it's considered a security. So in the US, um, although people may be really excited and want to buy some tokens, unless you're an accredited investor, you, you can't buy tokens at this stage. We're sorry about that, but that's just how it is. In other countries, we have different laws. So that's on one level. It's like we're fundraising to just build everything out because it's going to take a lot to build this digital infrastructure, right, and to fund things. And then on another level, we're developing. So we're in a development sprint. We're working on developing sort of these minimum viable ecological contracts and applications with partner projects. And we're working on developing and understanding existing protocols and the science behind monitoring and modeling and sort of being able to develop our framework based on the state of the art and and push the state of the art. So that's that's another way we're moving forward. And, you know, if people are interested, we would certainly love to hear from you about, you know, a project that you would love to engage as a pilot. For those of you who are Permi programmers, if you'd like to dig in and join the developer team, you know, um, we're building our team out right now. We've got plenty to do. We're, yeah, and we're also building out the governing consortium of this public infrastructure. So the region network will be governed by a consortium of organizations democratically. And we're looking for the first wave of consortium members. We already have kind of our minimum number to get started. We're open to some other 
organizations were getting started basically next month on chartering the constitution for how this all works uh, because we wanted to do that with a community not just in our heads so that's sort of where things are at in a very grounded and concrete way what's happening in our world at region network well the way that you guys are laying this out and thinking about these different aspects of this plan is just it's really i'm really impressed it's really well thought out it is a huge endeavor but it sounds like you're really getting good people and the right people involved. Yeah, it's a community process, really, at the end of the day. It is a huge endeavor, but it's, if you think about it, it's not as complex and crazy as it might sound relative to many things that have already been done by humans in the past. <laughs> and, and because it's so needed and people galvanize and are creative in moments of, of pressure – we feel very confident and optimistic that it's totally doable, completely doable. And the more um, minds and hearts that are engaged with thinking through some of the very non-trivial and real problems that we're going to face, the better. Because there are a lot of things to work out in order to make it all work seamlessly and effectively and, and be that kind of common digital infrastructure to help regenerate the planet. I forgot to mention, if folks are really interested in digging into the technicals, uh, we of course, we have a white paper that sort of goes through the system architecture. You can find that at regen.network. We'd love your thoughts, feedback, pushback, applause, whatever it might be. Uh, your reflections are really important. And we also have uh, public discussion channels for people to engage with and ask questions. We always spend a few hours a day engaging with with the community and and that's a great conduit to just sort of engage ask questions and or, and share ideas whatever it might be you can find all of that at regen.network and i can put uh, links in the show notes as well so where is that public discussion occurring so we have a, a riot forum and a telegram channel and you can the links are on the website regen.network well i think this is a great place to land the plane for today and I would like to invite you to uh, maybe have a, a future call with some of the other people involved with this project. Uh, we'd, we'd spoken previously about maybe doing a blockchain sort of forum with two or three or four of the people that uh, you're working with on that technology. So if that would be helpful in moving it forward, then um, we can set that up because uh, there is a bit of this that is... Uh, bears a lot more detailed explanation and being completely new to the idea of blockchain applications well in general and also for regenerative it was a little bit of a brain buster when i first heard about it at the panel discussion in san francisco so uh, i think that'd be really helpful for people to have a deeper understanding of how that works so that they can employ their hearts and minds into being part of this community and moving this whole thing forward you know globally so as we wrap up here, are there any like, kind of parting thoughts you'd like to leave with us? Hasta la regeneración siempre. Let's make it happen, folks. I'm really grateful to have gotten to share a little bit about what we're up to and look forward to the next time we get to share a little bit further down the road. And yeah, really grateful for the time and, and your great questions, David. Well, thank you very much, Gregory. It's been a pleasure. And that was Gregory Landway. Find out more about his work, the white paper he mentioned, and how to get involved at regen.network. 
You can see all of David's interviews and other projects he's working on at ecothinkit.com. And of course, this show is at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Though I'm not a techno-optimist by any means, I do like to see the interplay of culture, technology, and emerging ideas. How we might use the blockchain, most well known for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, in ways never initially imagined to explore different opportunities to conduct business, track information, engage in politics, and re-democratize the use of information. Even with those positive thoughts about how we can use this technology, I leave this conversation with more questions for Gregory, the Regen Network, and everyone involved with implementing the tokens, ledgers, and accounting system. Will everyone need to buy a token? If so, what does that mean for accessibility? What kind of technology and internet connection is needed to participate? And how will that create a digital divide, shutting some people out of the system and inviting others in? Those are some of my initial questions that come to mind, but I'm sure that you have many of your own. If you do and would like them included in the next conversation about blockchain and regenerative enterprise, leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is a conversation with Jesse Bloom when we talk about radical self-care. Until then, spend each day exploring the novel ways that we might use technology while creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.